This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Vanity Fair. Hi, everybody. It's Katie Rich. Thank you, as always, so much for your continued support of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men. We are so grateful to hear from you, to make this show for you. We hope that you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy creating it. Uh, We're taking a break for the holidays, uh, but we will be back next year to discuss the race to award season. The Golden Globes really are right around the corner. And in the meantime, we have an episode of Critics at Large from our friends at The New Yorker. In this episode, you can join Vincent Cunningham, Nomi Fry, and Alexandra Schwartz as they discuss how the legendary Martin Scorsese weaves together stories of American life and his newest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. Make sure to listen and follow The New Yorker's Critics at Large wherever you get your podcasts. Happy New Year! Hi, everyone. Hi! Just so we can know who's keeping an eye on us, I just brought a little. I brought a little um, paper doll of Scorsese that I that I made. Um, no, no, yeah, well, it's, you made it's, it's, that makes it sound a lot more impressive than it is. What? But you know, I just happened to see that the Instagram account Director Fitz, Director Fitz, I was gonna have. had shown a very fetching image of Marty stepping out of a car, kind of windswept in a raincoat, and I thought this is the energy I would like to bring today. Oh. <laughs> There it is. He's no, wearing I can see it now. a great trench coat. Oh, oh yes, I can. I can see. Yeah, um, now I can see. Where is the studio that you're at, uh, Nomi? I'm on the coast. You're in LA. I was here to officiate my friend Chris's wedding. I am still recovering <laughs> from that wedding two days hence. <laughs> so I will try to do my best today to bring my most salient thoughts about the darkness that lies in the heart of America. Kick us off. Let's do it. Kicking us off. Okay, welcome to Critics at Large, everyone. A new podcast from The New Yorker. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And I'm Alex Schwartz. We are all staff writers at The New Yorker, and each week on this show, we make sense of what's happening in the culture right now and how we got here. Okay, team, pod, when you think of the hallmarks of a film by Martin Scorsese... What do you think of? Um, I think of, uh, of, of, you know, this is a very obvious response. I think of uh, beatdowns. I think, <laughs> think of a lot of violence. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> that's know? fair. Very fair. Yeah. For me, the classic Scorsese experience is there's always a moment when I laugh and I really wish I hadn't laughed. Yeah, exactly. Uncomfortable laugh. Yes. Oh, that's really Dark good. humor mixed with dark doings. Yes. When, when I think of Scorsese, I think of the ways his movies get at those darker aspects of human nature, violence, evil, corruption, the kind of mix of all three. Um, you know, and of course, there are the classic mob movies that do this. Movies like Mean Streets or Goodfellas, The Departed, The Irishman. And his new film does this too, but in a very different setting. Oh, Sage. They have the worst land possible. But they outsmarted everybody. The land had oil on it. 
black gold. Killers of the Flower Moon is a historical epic that tracks a series of murders of native Osage people that took place in 1920s Oklahoma. Their time is over. This is going to be another tragedy. When this money started coming, we should have known it came with something else. Um, And it just opened this past weekend, and we have, I would say... A ton to talk about. I know I have a ton to talk about. Absolutely. Um, and we're also going to call up David Gran, who is our illustrious colleague, a fellow staff writer at The New Yorker, who wrote the book that the film is based on and helped on the film, I think, as a kind of historical consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and then I want to get to one big question I have today, which is about ownership, which is such a major thematic question in the movie and also occurs to me as a question to ask around the telling of the story that's in the movie, you know, specifically this question of who a story belongs to, who has the right to tell it. Scorsese's film focuses on the white perpetrators of violence against the Osage. Is this at the expense of the Osage's version of the story? We will discuss. Can't wait. Absolutely. Um, So can someone just give me a synopsis of the movie? Let's just get our let's get all our ducks in a row. Uh, Vincent. Yes. I'll say. So I'm calling on you. I'm, I'm didn't see your hand raised, <laughs> but I'm calling on you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the movie opens in 1920s Oklahoma, and we're dropped into Osage country. And because of the oil on Osage land, the Osage have become incredibly rich. They're the most they're most wealthy people per capita in the world. And then there's also right this white society that exists among them. Yeah, the, there's there's sort of parasite class. That's in a exactly way. right. Yeah. Exactly right. And the main way that this white class can access the wealth of the Osage is by marrying into their families and inheriting their oil money. It, these what they call headrights couldn't be bought; they had to be inherited. So we meet this guy, played by uh, Leo DiCaprio, named Ernest Burkhart, who has come to this the Osage territory to live with his uncle, um, William Hale. And King Hale. King. As he, as he likes yeah. to call you himself. Can just, you could call me King. You, you can know. call me King. Yeah. <laughs> as he says to his nephew. Mm-hmm. As he says to yeah. his nephew. Yeah. It's um, psychotically yeah. played by Robert De Niro. Mm. And Ernest is like a sort of every man he, I think from the beginning, portrayed as like sort of doltish and dense and not very perceptive to what's going on around him. I would even cut the sort of. Yes, he's a stupid guy. Yeah, um, <laughs> he's not. He's not sharp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very soon we see him marry a native woman named Molly, mm-hmm. um, and it, as part of a big plan to sort of systematically kill her family and then possibly her um, in a, in a, in an attempt to take control of these these head rights. That oil should go to her sisters, your wife. Well, he's taking money that my rights should go to Molly. My mother, Lizzie. She's not in good shape. She won't last. Most Osage don't live past 50. When these women die, with how Osage suffer from illness, you have to make it the head rights come to you. You see? So it's a, this the slow... Uh, sort of compoundingly terrifying story of this uh, very clear case of extraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, you know, one thing that I think is worth saying right at the start is 
a little bit about the history of the Osage people and how and how they came into this position, which is recounted, I think, pretty wonderfully in the movie in a scene where Ernest Burkhart is reading from a history book of the Osage because his uncle has essentially told him, ingratiate yourself with them. Try mm-hmm. to get in as much as you can. Right. You know, here are their ways. Here are their customs. You try to learn it. Speak their language if you can. Get in. Um, and he's reading this book about the Osage, and it explains that they had, you know, l- had to leave their territory, which when they got to this portion of Oklahoma, what did they discover? Oil. So they kind of luck in to this extraordinary wealth, and their recompense is being picked off one by one, as you say, Vincent, by by the whites who, or as Nomi says, by the vulture class, an expression right. I think, that I think is totally apt in this yeah. case. I might have said parasite class, but they are also mm, vultures. Parasite class, yes. Can we just go on the most basic level here? Can I just... Did you guys? I don't even know yet. Did you like the movie? I liked it. Yes, I did. I I'm I'm pausing a little bit because for me, I have to say, just on the basic level of like taste and preference, my love of Scorsese as a kind of like master of excitement, you know, master of like whirling limbs and and kind of like short sharp cuts and you know and 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 the things that that maybe um characterized earlier movies of his like say goodfellas for instance i struggle with myself with that shift because i love the the earlier movies so much Okay, so I'm getting I'm getting an on the fence, a diplomatic on the fence. Feeling. No, it's not diplomatic. I liked it. I think I think it's really good. It's visually right. stunning. It's intricate. The acting is incredible. It's the pacing is absolutely sure. You know, it's like it's an incredibly mature, impressive piece of work. So I'm not on the fence on that. Mm-hmm. I am on the fence about like the, the sort of visceral excitement it makes me feel is what I would say. Vincent? I'm, I think it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It's like... Uh, for me, the the Scorsese movies of the last twenty years, let's say, um, it's it's right there with Wolf of Wall Street, which I also love, um, and they operate in very different registers. I think like Wolf of Wall Street indulges in the velocity that Nomi's talking mm-hmm. about. It mm-hmm. has some of that sort of gleeful, in your face, um, fun Scorsese, whereas Killers is it's not slow because it's so dense with incident, but it has this elegiac... Elegiac, um, yeah. In some ways, it is a, a eulogy for something. and um, But it does have all these you know, varied moments of outlays of information. You mentioned that great scene where he's turning the pages of the book Leo is, um, or Ernest is, and we're getting this information in, uh, in a voiceover. Uh, before that, we have a voiceover with the voice that turns out to be Molly, um, Ernest's wife in these sort of very still tableaus of unsolved murders you know a, a jarring early moment as a woman is is killed we see her being shot and her baby taken out of the stroller that she's been pushing and um even as the voiceover is saying you know this was claimed as a suicide we see that it was a murder and there's a lot of other times when people are laying in their deathbeds and being like unsolved unsolved um so these different like formal approaches to outlays of information and of course there's like a very big formal departure at the end a coda that we will discuss um it it seems to me like just 
someone with every single tool at his disposal. I think this might be a difference in our taste, Nomi. I am just so impressed. Late style, generally, when people start to like mm-hmm. show a kind of formal mastery, these are usually my favorite works. Um, so I just, I left like, I don't know, like every hair on my body was standing up. And it's like, uh, I, I fucking loved it. <laughs> How yes. about you? Oh, well, Alex, yeah, Alex, give us, give us, okay, give us the definitive answer so we know what to think. Chills, my friends. Chills. Chills. Yeah, I feel pretty haunted by this film, I would say. Um, the experience for me has actually grown in the few days since I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Kind of visions of the film itself um, recurring to me. And, you know, even the cry of Molly Burkhart, who is yeah, played so amazingly by Lily Gladstone, this mm. kind of guttural grief that she has to experience not once, not twice, but many times during the course of this movie in which right. her um, sisters and mother and other friends and acquaintances are, are hunted down. Um, that There's something so um, just bone deep about that kind of uh, grief and that performance and the way that Scorsese gives it room to breathe. Um, that has really stayed with me. In a minute, David Grant is going to come on and tell us about watching his reporting come to life in the hands of Scorsese. Critics at Large from The New Yorker will be right back. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So Scorsese has centered this movie around a very unusual love story between Mm -hmm. Molly and Ernest Burkhart. What did you guys make of the love story at the heart of this? Well, in general, thematically... I think the idea that people's motives aren't always completely clear to themselves and that Mm. uh, good intertwines with evil is one of the things that uh, Scorsese is very good at. It reminded me of, um, I don't know, even in Casino, the classic Scorsese movie from 1995, there's a relationship between Ginger, played by Sharon Stone, and Ace, played by Robert De Niro, where he very much loves her and is obsessed with her. She's a kind of like Vegas uh, uh, sort of grifter, you know, but very charming. 
Who didn't want Ginger? She was one of the best known, best liked, and most respected hustlers in town. Smart hustlers like her could keep a guy awake for two or three days before sending him home broke to the little woman and his bank examiners. Meanwhile, she has this relationship with Lester, played by James Woods, and he is grifting Ginger. There's a series of, of relationships where love stands shoulder to shoulder with the most evil impulses possible. So for me, in a way, even though this is a very different kind of movie, as we've said, the relationship between Ernest and Molly seemed natural to me in, in the Scorsese universe. The other thing going on here, of course, is is the racialized nature of this relationship. Yes, you know, absolutely. it's um, yeah, which is different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, totally different because there's such an unstable balance here between the love story between two people, between Ernest and Molly, and this kind of alliance love story that Ernest's uncle King Hill is trying to build between the parasitic whites and the Osage marriage as. I think we can say kind of like a tool of war versus marriage between two individuals as a bond of love. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. there's a certain kind of clear-eyed nature with which Molly, for instance, goes into the relationship. She understands that the whites are interested in the wealth that the Osage have. She says it explicitly, as does Ernest at the beginning. He says, I love money. She knows that wealth is a big perk and mm-hmm. you know yeah, she says um, coyote coyote loves money she calls yes, him she coyote. calls him coyote exactly yeah. when she says that um she's she's speaking in the the osage language she's speaking to these other women and they're looking up at him he's kind of rooting on some race that's happening, but also looking back at her. And she's she's like, Coyote, you know, yeah, this Coyote guy, he wants money, but blah, blah, blah. And you can see her, she's like grinning at him. You can see her kind of falling in love like, almost against her own will, against like the, the very high intelligence that she clearly has. Yeah. Whereas Ernest seems to me like a totally allegorical American, someone who is offered lots of things that sound easy and mm. is able to block off what he eventually will have to do to get them. That's so smart. Yeah. But nonetheless, even within this really poison framework, some kind of bond is established between the two of them. And I think the beauty of the movie is that I, at least, really believed it, even as it becomes more and more difficult for Ernest to lie to himself about what he's doing and how it affects Molly, the person, um, Mm. you know, in this most human level. So we are now about to be joined by David Gran, who's a fellow staff writer at The New Yorker and who wrote the book that Killers of the Flower Moon is based on. Hi, David. Hi. Hey, everybody. We're just chatting about love. (laughs) Twisted love, I guess. Twisted love. (laughs) Sick love? I don't know, man. (laughs) We're so thrilled that you're here to talk with us. Can I ask, David, how did the story first come to you? And what was the moment for you when you were like, okay, this is 
this is bi- like this is going to be a book. This is big. This is yes. what I'm meant to do for the next five years or yes, It's always good when you begin a book that you never think it will take five years, and then because <laughs> right. you know, I think right, if you right, did, right. you might you might never yeah. embark. But you always right. think, oh, I could do this quickly. But um, yeah. but uh, cut you know, cut you five years later exactly, yeah. and you're banging your head gone, against the wall, and you're gray, and you're walking yeah. with a cane. But um, you know, I had heard about this uh, from a historian. And I decided to make a trip out to the Osage Nation. And at that time, I thought, well, maybe I, maybe an article might come out of this. And I made a trip to the uh, Osage Nation Museum, which is kind of the first, what, what's the first thing you do when you go to a place? Well, you, they had a museum, so I thought I would go there. Yeah. And, um, and I described this in this book, but there was this great panoramic photograph on the wall, which was taken, I, now my memory, I can't remember, it was 1923 or 1924, but it showed members of the Osage Nation along with white settlers. Right. And I'm looking at it, just kind of admiring this incredible photograph. And I noticed that a portion of the photograph was missing. And I asked the then museum director, and I said, you know, why is part of the photograph missing? And she said it had contained this figure so frightening, she had decided to remove it. And she then pointed to that missing panel and she said, the devil was standing right there. Mm. Wow. And then she went down into the basement um, and she brought up an image of the missing panel. It was just small, but she had an image mm. of it. And there I could see peering out very creepily from the corner. She pointed to one of the main killers of many of the Osage, a very flamboyant and brutal killer. And I was just so haunted by that. Um, and it was really that rare moment where a book had a real origin story. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, in that instant I knew this is a story I need to tell. And so I began the project. And the real question was not whether I wanted to write the book, but just whether I could, you know, could I find the underlying records? Could I find uh, the oral histories? Because I really wanted this story to not be just a recitation of names and dates and when you died. I wanted it to be Molly Burkhardt. I wanted you to know who she was as best I could, that these were people with souls and lives and, mischievous sense of humor or whatever it might have been so that we could know yeah. them. Yeah. I mean, I do think you you do a wonderful job of of filling up these people who are of course you know only as records and you know kind of from histories and so on, but uh you know, one of the challenges for a writer bound by historical fact is then how to m- make these characters real, but still stick to the truth, obviously, yes. and not just make up, you know. Uh, tell us your advice <laughs> for that, for any aspiring, you know, sort of like historical uh, journalist uh, and researcher. Tell yeah. us your secrets. How does uh, one do that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's very time consuming, which I think is the ultimate secret, because, you know, if you're not witnessing things, you really have to reconstruct them. And I would go out to Osage County and I would live there for, you know, a couple months a year um, Mm -hmm. and just do meet people. And the Osage elders in particular, um, you know, I would interview one and they would share with me their story. And they say, well, you you know, you really need to meet uh, Mary Jo Webb. And so they would take me over to see Mary Jo Webb. And so it was just that process of immersion. Um, But it also really changed the shape of the story. Because when I began researching my book, I really thought of it the way the FBI, which came in to investigate it, had thought of the case, or at least the way they had represented it. They had said, you know, this was kind of this singular evil figure who committed this crime. 
And he had done it with a couple of henchmen that the Bureau had caught them. And that ended the Osage reign of terror. But I kept meeting these Osage elders and they would tell me, you know, there's another suspicious death in my family that was never actually investigated. Mm. Um, I remember Mary Jo Webb. I'll never forget this. You know, she she's since passed, but I remember her I was in her house in Fairfax where many of these crimes took place, including a bombing. And she went to her closet and she took out, she brought out this little cardboard box. And inside were all these documents. And I said, what are those? And she said, well, I spent decades trying to investigate the death of one of my ancestors to figure out who was the perpetrator. And she shared those with me. And so I began to think, wait a second, I think the story I'm looking at may be very different. Um, There really was a much deeper and darker conspiracy um, that the Bureau never exposed. Well, So, I mean, you you do all this amazing work. You figure this out. You put out a book. It's a great success. Is the next thing that Martin Scorsese calls you and says, hey, David, I'd like to make a picture? Like, what? <laughs> how, do, how does this all happen where you suddenly know Martin Scorsese and he's making a movie based on your book? Yeah. And how did it feel? Yeah, were you as surprised as it, I was get that the it was call. Martin Scorsese? Yes. Look, I, look, like I'm an ink stain wretch. I have spent my whole life as an ink stain wretch. <laughs> I have, I live in work out of little closets with boxes of documents. But like everybody else, I'm a total film buff. I just grew up watching Taxi Driver and Goodfellas and Casino right. and Mean Streets. And so, to be honest, you're both incredibly excited. But if I'm being a little bit honest, you're a little bit terrified because <laughs> you're like, okay. Um, What's it going to do to my thing? Yeah, well, and to be honest, less my thing than just you have developed relationships with Osage Mm. Nation who have entrusted you with these stories. And and you've tried to record them as best you can. And you feel like hopefully you have earned the trust and kept that trust. And so- Not, I knew I was in the best filmmaking hands ever. I mean, that was like, that was never, I never, never worry that it would be a remarkable film with incredible shots and acting, like, but that they would get the history and mm-hmm. want to get at these deeper truths and get at the sense of complicity and get at what really underlay these crimes. But I will say that the second I spoke to Scorsese and then began to speak to his people, they shared that commitment. And right. so I felt good. And then the other thing was, most of my interactions with them were kind of the way you would have interactions with an editor. I mean, they really were just, they were like, oh, okay, what can we know? What can they, we learn? There was just kind of this voracious curiosity where I was just kind of sending them documents or an actor might call and be like, you know, what do you know about this, the real person I'm going to play? So, so would Leo call you up? He would. Hey, hey Dave. <laughs> we, want, we want to know. We want to know about Leo. Yeah, <laughs> we just try, come on. Give We're us some juice. Human. We're only We're human. We're only human. Uh, or or Bobby? Did Bobby call? No, Bobby did never Bobby called me up. Calling? Bobby never called me up. But the Caprio okay. will call me. And I'll say this about the Caprio. Um, I think he was trying to get at um, you know, that relationship too. You know what? You know, try. You know, I think they all were trying to figure out this relationship with Molly and to try to understand it. And I remember once, and this was at toward the end of a conversation with him, where I suddenly watched him suddenly slipping into the character and even using in, in the person voice. or on the or phone. In, on, on the, the phone. phone. Yeah. And I just did was, he do I, it like to show you? No, per, he was like, figuring it out. And I just whoa. I didn't say anything to him. I just was like, but I got off the phone. I was like, that was incredible. 
Have, have you heard from any of your Osage friends or sources about their reactions to the movie? I'm so curious to hear. Yeah, you know, of course. And, and you know, that was what you're most nervous about. Yeah. Um, I think, we, you know, I never want to speak for other people. I'm really careful about that unless someone says directly. And even my sense is that you are going to get, you know, a breath of reactions the way anyone seeing a movie would be. But in this case, seeing a movie about your history and not ancient history. I think that's mm-hmm. something to really important. Like I went to a screening of this film, a private screening in Tulsa, which the movie people to the credit arranged to make sure that many Osage saw the film before it came out. So they wouldn't suddenly be seeing this film with everyone else. They would have time to process it. Um, and, you know, in that, in those screening rooms were people watching their grandfathers or grandmothers or great aunts. Um, being murdered. And interestingly enough, I've seen this screening elsewhere where people laugh because there is this kind of, you know, sometimes this kind of the the, the bad people, you know. The, the, yeah, the like villain. banter. They, they kind yeah, of, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, they, it's a, it is a Scorsese movie. Yeah, it's I mean, a little bit of a mobbish banter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you, mm-hmm. you, right. And when you watched it in that, I tell you, when I watched it in that Tulsa room, there was an, I never heard a word. There was not one laughter. It was yeah. just yeah. quiet. Overwhelmingly, Amid the difficulties of processing and the emotion, I've only heard, for the most part, only very positive feelings. And the reason was that they were so involved in the film. And, you know, one of the first and most important decisions that that was so important to them, and I think really ended up, it was in some ways the key decision, I think, was they wanted it filmed in Osage territory. They thought mm-hmm. the filming should take place there. Hmm. And we all know from movie business, that's pretty hard these days. I guess, you know, you would you would all know better than me, but I don't think it t- t- happens too often. You know, it's all, you're always filming where there's some tax credits. So you, yeah, you never, absolutely. you know, something sure. takes place in Texas, yeah. but you shoot it in Ohio. Like, never. In Toronto, <laughs> yeah. The number of times I've seen Toronto stand in for New York City and or New York City stand in for Chicago or whatever it is. Right, yeah. Right. Right. yeah. And I think that was such a key early decision because what it meant was that the production was going to be there. And they were going to be there for months, surrounded in the community. And I think that was so key because then they immersed themselves, built the relationships, heard all the stories, ended up really shaping the story they told. So many Osage are involved in um, every level of that production. I mean, I visited the set for several days and they were just, you know, extras, speaking roles, the language consultants, the costume designs. I mean, everything. It really was something. It was it was remarkable. David, you know, not to we, we have to let you go in a second, but we must put you on the hot seat briefly. Um Leaving aside Killers <laughs> of the Flower Moon, yes. do you have a favorite Scorsese movie? We know, he's, we, know, we know he's your friend now. It's but unfair. Just it's brutal. Just answer. It's really hard to choose. It is really hard. I mean, Wolf of Wall Street is incredible. Um, Goodfellas is always incredible. Ta- I mean, how can you not pick Taxi Driver? I know. You know, I think Silence is a beautiful, very powerful, and evocative mm-hmm. movement, and evokes some of the stillness that is in Killers of the Flower Moon that has a real power. All right, so we're going to put you down as five favorites, <laughs> five to six favorites. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you we'll let you elegantly wriggle your way out of that one. But Good. should you Thank reappear, you. we Thank we you. will be asking you to narrow it down. <laughs> Say hi to Marty for us. Please. <laughs> yeah, please say hi to Marty for us. <laughs> and tell him we'd love to have him on. Yeah, we'd love to have him on. 
Well, thank you all. This was such Come a pleasure. Come on the pod, Marty. And congrats on the new thanks pod. So much, it's terrific. Thanks, thanks so much, David. Thank you so thanks, much, David. David. All right, take care. Thank Bye. you. Bye. So what can or should a movie do to address the wrongs of the past? Critics at Large from The New Yorker will be back in a minute. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. You know, guys, I thought it was so interesting what um, David Grant was just saying about the way that Scorsese incorporated um, the Osage community into the filmmaking process. Mm-hmm. One thing I know about Scorsese's filmmaking in general is that he wants the reality of the world to come in. Like one of my favorite Scorsese scenes from Goodfellas is the famous um, Joe Pesci, Am I Funny scene. Oh, my gosh. Really funny. Really funny. What do you mean I'm funny? It's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. You mean the way I talk? It's just, you know, you're just funny. It's, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? Funny how? You know, yeah. you guys know what I'm talking about? Funny like a clown? Yeah, funny like a funny clown. Funny like a clown? Mm-hmm. Funny how? Like, that scene is so frightening mm-hmm. and where something that seems to be really just everyone's laughing and suddenly the laughter is turned and it becomes super dark and scary. And actually, to my knowledge, um, it was something that had happened to Joe Pesci. He described it to Scorsese and Scorsese said, yeah, OK, that should be in the movie. That's got to be in. So it's, you know, I think a lot of the Scorsese experience is about Trying to, you know, as you were saying before, Nomi, the film is very produced. It's very beautiful. It really looks like a movie, but also mm-hmm. trying to get reality in there. Um, yes. So one thing I wanted to ask you guys about, you know, one inevitable criticism of this movie, and I understand it, is going to be that it isn't Scorsese's film to make. This is I've, – I've seen it already in some reviews, um, kind of what right does Scorsese have to look at this history. I mean, to my mind at least, this is a film about – uh, whiteness just as much as it is a film about um, what happened to the Osage. And, Absolutely. And, um, you know, to 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 that end, uh, I think it's kind of essential that a filmmaker with the stature of someone like Martin Scorsese interrogates those questions about, about um, how evil is done and how racialized evil is done. But what do you guys think? I totally agree with that. And, you know, one way we've, you know, you could think about this as an extension of Scorsese and organized crime, because, of course, this is an organized crime. But another way to think about this, which I think makes it new in the Scorsese-verse, is it's a horror film, and the white people are the monsters. Like, every single time a Native person and a member um, of the Osage Nation, like, trusts a white person for any reason, as a doctor, as a friend, as a husband, as anything. I'm like, it's like a jump scare in this movie. Totally. Absolutely, right? The the sort of, the trauma of this experience, the particularity, the, the its its rootedness in place, of course, um, belongs most 
intimately to the Osage people, but um, the proclivities that gave rise to it, the sort of sensibilities that survive in our culture today um, is something that every person, I think, that has anything to do with the United States needs to um, engage with. Um, one thing I thought about a lot is, you know, Scorsese has talked a lot about Catholicism and um, especially Jesuit spirituality of course, across his movies. And it's something that, you know, um, is a big influence in his life. And I thinking about this as the, the Jesuits have a, uh, a spiritual practice that's called the examination of conscience. It's a, a way to pray. At the end of the day, you you look at everything you did that day, and when was I close to God, and when was I not? This sort of accounting, you know? And it seems like this movie is that kind of um, searing examination. It's asking, uh, where in my culture was I close to the good, and where, you know, in our history were we very much not? Yeah. You can't deal with history by refusing to deal with it. <laughs> I mean, that sounds so stupid, but like you can't, yeah, nothing no, is going to no, be gained. Nothing yes. is going to be gained from someone like Scorsese saying, this is not my story to tell. Okay. Like we're not going to be able to deal with this and with the burden and guilt of whiteness by saying this story should only be told by the victims of the story. Part of a political act in filmmaking in this case is to um, acknowledge and admit that you're part of the problem and you need to examine this problem. And it can be and perhaps even should be your place to go back into these stories and say, this is what happened. And I'm looking at this in as clear-eyed a way as as possible, and so the and and of course, alongside that, being also as um, honest and sensitive and involved as possible with the Osage Nation and you know and and the people's actual stories. Yeah, I think you know you said Nomi like that. Um, part, the the phrase part of the problem, and I, I I would say certainly like the way I would put it is inheritors of the problem. That it's a yes. problem that is all of ours to reckon with. To reckon um, with, exactly. And it has to be reckoned with anew, um, kind of, you know, in each generation. And also, as David Grant said, this is not long ago. This is quite right. recent. Um, you know, also in the movie, of course, there is, I think, a very canny um, presentation of the um, the Tulsa massacre, the Tulsa race riots that destroyed um, Black Wall Street, you know, where whites in Tulsa completely crushed the black community. Um Scorsese is working this in. He's really looking at this and thinking about this. Right. And um, to that end, this is just to say that the coda of the film I found incredibly powerful. I actually, um, I actually cried a bit when when Marty himself appeared on screen. Mm. There's it this, was very moving. I, I found it really moving. It's just to explain to people who haven't seen this film yet, who want to know what the exact last moments of it are like, so that um, you can have literally every piece of it spoiled before you go. <laughs> um, you know the the coda enhanced, is not spoiled. Enhanced, enhanced. Thank you. Yes. See how. Yes. Let me paint with words what what um, <laughs> <laughs> what Martin Scorsese has painted for you with his <laughs> whole box of tricks. Um, Scorsese stages a radio play. I'm guessing that the time for it is 1940s. It could be 1930s. Based on the action that happens that you're going to describe, it yeah. seems like the 40s. Yeah, that's at least that's what I was thinking. And it's we're in a theater. They're recording a live radio show for an audience, an audience made up of, it seems pretty much exclusively white people, unsurprisingly. Um, 
about the Osage murders, and they're dramatizing it. They have Foley artists who are creating the sounds of the the sounds of shots going off or of a house burning down in an explosion. And at the end, Scorsese himself comes up to read the obituary of Molly Burkhart, um, the real obituary. And it's very simple obituary. It makes no mention of the murders. And I just found that moment so um, so emotional, quite honestly, because to me, I think what I think what he's doing is he's showing the way that real life gets packaged into entertainment, um, in this case, definitely white entertainment for a white audience by white people. And he himself, you know, white Martin Scorsese, is there to sort of say, yeah, I'm aware of this, and I know, and I've tried to do it differently, but I'm also, this is who I am as well. It's really actually quite multi- it, yeah, yeah. I think, there's a I lot think of there's a lot going on. Yeah, I in think that it's moment. very multi layered. As, as yeah, multi layered. As you say, um, and you know, it's the sort of coda that wraps a lot of these questions into it by him kind of spelling onto us in a subtle but 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 meaningful way uh, some of the potential traps, potential and inevitable, probably. You know of one person telling another person's story or another people's story, in this case, the Osage Nation, and trying to do it justice. You know, so so of course, like in this radio play, right, that he is leading or that he's he's kind of capping, it's clear that a lot of things are missed. And this movie does something very different. And yet it's a movie. You know what I mean? Like a, a, a movie contains. It's still an entertainment. It's is, still an is entertainment, that what you're and it's, it's still necessarily a limited, limited. A movie isn't history. A movie isn't life. A movie can't bring anyone back. A movie can't. Uh, the, the wheels of justice. It might turn them, you know, a little bit, and refigure our understanding of the past. But the past is the past. You know. So I think there's both an, an attempt and an acknowledgement of the difficulty of the attempt, if if that makes sense. Is that how you read it, Vincent? Yeah, it, it closed actually an emotional loop for me that was just, I couldn't tell if it was just me or, you know. There's an early scene. It's when Ernest, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, first meets William Hale, played by Robert De Niro. And they're sitting in this living room and De Niro's kind of telling him all, this is when he he's seducingly introducing him into this new landscape, right? Um, For me, so strange, this happens to me sometimes in movies with like really big movie stars in them. For a minute, it just like, I was so out of it. I was like, that's Leo DiCaprio. (laughs) That's Robert De Niro. And they're doing voices. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, it was, yeah, it was almost like it was SNL or something. I was like, for a minute, I was like, this, come on. You know, it's like, but that happens to me a lot in movies just because like, oh, it's a movie. And they're famous. They're super famous. It's it's an entertainment, you know? And so I do think that it was like this, you know, this moment of, it was the movie in microcosm and uh, this radio play. It's like, you know, at one point there's a, they make the noise of the cars of that period. It's like, or whatever. And it's like, we've been hearing that sound all through this movie. Like that too is a sound effect, you know? And then after, after talking to David, it also strikes me. It's like, you know. There's the immensity, the awful immensity and uncapturable nature of reality. And then someone like David makes a book. And then someone like 
Martin Scorsese makes a movie and then here's this little radio play. It's like this, these processes by which like reality, which is uncapturable, is a sort of like strained through our processes of representation, however, whatever forms they take. History, uh, even history is not reality. History, even, yes. like what we yes. think of history, capital H, is not the past. Which, it's, a, again, it's a certain capturing of the right? past. Yeah. Um, and so this like the impossibility of the attempt and it becomes, I think, a, a a way of talking about a career. It's like, I did what I could. That's so nice. I love that. Yeah. I mean, Nomi, you say, and and you're right, of course, and certainly literally, that this can bring no one back. But, you know, here I want to speak on behalf of the attempt because— Oh, my God. The, the attempt is the most important thing in the world. Why yeah. are we doing a podcast where we talk about the making of culture? Culture is the attempt. The, the, the culture is the attempt. You said it. Culture is the attempt. Like the, <laughs> it's, like, it's true. It's yeah. true. It's true. You know, it. That's why I find that moment so multifaceted and multi-layered. <laughs> Just Scorsese saying, you know, I've tried, I've failed, or have I? But I've given you something, and I've worked with what I could work with. And there is something so um, moving to me that this is at eighty years old. This is what Scorsese wanted to do. He wanted to find a new frontier for himself. Um, And I think like with a certain ethical imperative to it of the kind of story he wanted to tell and not just revert back to what he knows and has known. Um, Yeah. I'm just sitting with my feelings about it for a second um, because I really did – tears just sprang to my eyes in the theater. I totally get what you're saying. I didn't (laughs) cry, but I felt – I did feel – moved and there's something just about his like you know is this uh scorsese's just beautiful f- face that we've known now for so long and we've known his work for so long his and he's dear so, face his dear face and he's so important and has given us so much and despite my absolutely like infantile tastes in like what i tend to like which as you know we've already began sketching here <laughs> over the last several weeks is you know sort of blood and guts and sex and money and and all of that Please, i you're do closeted sophisticated and everyone I'm needs a to closeted, know it. right like give me marty's 80 year old face at the end of of a four our movie and I'm like (laughs) I love him I love him which is just to say that we're not done discussing you Martin Scorsese not even close we're not even close never Buster so we're gonna (laughs) don't get any ideas about retiring or anything else because Critics at Large is just getting started This has been Critics at Large. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby. Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Alexis Quadrado composed our theme music. We had engineering help today from Jake Loomis, and this episode was mixed by Mike Kutchman. If you enjoyed the episode, go ahead and leave us a review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear what you think. See you next time. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs>
<laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, Anna Winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 